Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The conception of God in these ancient texts is actually a little bit fluid. People are still trying to figure out what is God like? We believe there's one God, creator of heaven and earth, and no other gods besides him. But it took our ancestors a long time to figure that out. Professor Kathleen Chopra McGowan unravels the clues in the layers and incongruities of our Bible, taken in context of the ancient Near East showing how the stories and traditions of Israel resembled and borrowed from those of Babylon and Assyria, and how they fundamentally diverged. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Kathleen Chopra McGowan. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University, a Jesuit university in Northern California. She teaches courses in the Near East Biblical Literature, Archaeology, ancient languages, and the contemporary uses of the Bible in political and civil society. Professor Chopra McGowan researches biblical literature within the ancient Near Eastern milieu, and her first book is on the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. So Dr. Chopra McGowan, welcome to Almost Good Catholics. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Um, Do you have a a joke or a funny story you'd like to share? Um, So yes, it's It's a little bit of a joke, a little bit of a funny story. Um, So my child, she's two years old, um, she's gotten really interested in um, sort of what I study, what I'm doing. And um, shortly after she learned how to speak in complete sentences, this is, you know, two months ago, three months ago now, Mm -hmm. um, she came up to me one morning very seriously and she said, Mama, I want to tell you something. And I said, what is it, Uma? And she said to me, Mama, I a genius. I not Jesus. <laughs> oh, very nice. Very nice. Well, God bless her. Um, tell, well, tell us a bit about yourself, too, and how you became a religious studies scholar in the first place. Sure. Um, so I uh, grew up in India. I grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas. And um I was always kind of fascinated by questions of history and language and um, how religion, especially in a place that is as diverse as India, is often being implicated in conversations and discussions in politics. And religion was kind of present in every single sphere. But at the same time, I wasn't quite sure if that was something I wanted to sort of study. I thought I wanted to be a forensic psychologist. Um, And so I 
went to college. I went to Boston College um, on the East Coast, and mm-hmm. I thought that I would study psychology. Um, very quickly, it became apparent that that was not really my calling. Um, I took a great class on the Hebrew Bible my freshman year, and I just fell in love with it. It seemed to kind of combine everything that I was interested in. And the more I sort of got into it, the more I thought, well, maybe I should drop the whole psychology thing. And this is where actually the um, the Jesuit uh, sort of education and the, the kinds of questions that they help people ask really made me sort of think about what I was doing and whether or not it was really my vocation. And so there's a tradition in the Jesuit spiritual exercises um, where they ask these three key questions. What are you good at? What brings you joy? And who does the world need you to be? Hmm. And when you find one thing that answers all three questions, you found your calling, you found your vocation. And for me, teaching and studying the Hebrew Bible was what answered all three things. Um, so that's how I began, and I've never looked back. Wonderful. And were you raised in a, in a Catholic Christian home in India? Yes. Yeah. So I, um, I was raised Catholic. My, my mother is Catholic. My father is Hindu. And so I've sort of been exposed to multiple religions from an early age, um, now my my husband is Jewish, my sister-in-law is Buddhist, wow. so I have a sort of <laughs> yeah, quite quite the range now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a religious studies department. Anytime you get together with your family, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I've only been to the foothills of the Himalayas once, and that was in Darjeeling. Uh, Fifteen years ago, maybe more, oh, wow. as a tourist, and it's such oh, a wow. beautiful part of the world. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am eager to ask you about the development of this monotheistic religion that we share that lives today. And really, a quarter of the people in the world today are heirs of that Judeo-Christian tradition. And if we include Islam, it's it's more like half. Um, Uh So um, one, I want to ask you to what extent it's similar to other ancient Mesopotamian religious traditions and how it's different. And my question um, is is perfect for you, I hope, because you are a, such a scholar of the um, of the scripture, and uh, I've read the flood narrative in the uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, and uh-huh. I've heard um, other religious scholars drawing upon um, examples of similarities and in, in tropes uh, in that the ancient Jews in in ancient Canaan shared with with their neighbors. Um, so what? What, how should we approach this question? Yeah, this is a great question. Yeah. And it, it's also, it's there are a lot of different ways we can approach it. Um, we could dive right into comparative literature like the Epic of Gilgamesh, Enuma Elish, or Atrahasis. These are all uh, flood stories and creation stories from Mesopotamia. And we could kind of jump right in and see, well, how are they similar? How are they different? Another way we could think about it is, well, how is it that um, these communities might have had contact with each other? Is it possible that all of these stories are emerging on their own and they just happen to have a lot in common? Um, Or is it that there's actually a lot of interaction between these different regions and we can explain it through communication and through contact? And so um, I suppose 
the the way that I prefer to go about it is to kind of see first and foremost, um, what does the text say? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the biblical text or Epic of Gilgamesh, how does it hang together as its own sort of unity, as its own uh, sort of independent work? And then the next step after that is to say, well, are there other things that look like this? Where do they look similar? And so when we can take the Epic of Gilgamesh um, or Atrahasis, and both of these um, Mesopotamian epics contain these very sort of elaborate descriptions of a major flood. And they describe a particular individual who's chosen to sort of um, be the only one who survives the flood. Uh, in both the Epic of Gilgamesh and in Atrahasis, um, we see this single individual being asked to build some sort of a boat, um, an ark, uh, if you will. Can and, could you give us a little a little context? I, I know that Gilgamesh is uh, from Babylon, right? He's yes. from Ur or Uruk or something like that. And exactly, this is like three thousand years ago or something. Or yes, so. Um, there are a couple of different uh, sort of risks. Oh, I'm sorry. There's an earthquake. I have to get going. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Okay, so we're back. So, uh, how was the earthquake? <laughs> uh, slightly terrified. Uh, yeah. Um, it's always nice though when things like this happen during the day and not at two in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. So, small yeah. mercies. Yeah. yeah. And I've already gotten an alert saying that it was uh, 4.8, which is not terrible, um, but it's certainly noticeable. Well, I haven't felt it, and I'm just across the bay in Berkeley, and you're in Silicon Valley. Yeah, and, interesting. Uh, so, so I maybe I can't feel them. You know, I felt the big one when I was a child back in 1989, I think it was. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I felt a couple when I lived in Alaska, but I just don't feel them very often. Do you feel do you feel them frequently? Um, I, I'm pretty aware of them here. I'm not sure exactly why. We seem to we've had I think three or four in the last two years that we have actually noticed, um, but. Growing up in India, I've experienced uh, some very large ones, 6.9, uh, 7.2. That was the biggest one. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. in India, they're more dangerous, I imagine, because there's probably exactly buildings that fall down and everything. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So um, well, hopefully that was not an omen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully not. <laughs> um, so I was going to I was asking you about Gilgamesh, which is a familiar story to me, an old Babylonian tale. I do not know the other one, Atrahasis, that you referred yes. to, and I was wondering yeah. if you could sort of put them in context for us, um, for the general listener who doesn't who doesn't follow this as closely yeah, as you do. So, um, so we have um, uh, these two stories, Gilgamesh and Atrahasis, and they both come from Mesopotamia, uh, from. Um, Babylon and Uruk. Uruk is right near um, Babylon. And um, for a long time, scholars thought that Gilgamesh was the oldest um, sort of epic that we had from the ancient Near East. Um, It seemed to be also the oldest flood story. Um, It contains an account of this um, man named Gilgamesh, who is um, the leader of his people. He's the king. 
Um, and it kind of follows his interactions and his quest to gain immortality. And he, during this time, he comes across somebody named Utnapishtim, who is a man who's actually experienced this catastrophic global flood. Um, and Utnapishtim, during that flood, had been chosen as the one person to survive it. And so that account kind of gives us a sense of this rather um, kind of peculiar construction that Utnapishtim made to escape these great waters. And I say peculiar because every other account tells us, you know, the person made a boat. Mm -hmm. Well, if you figure out what the dimensions of this thing, this this sort of raft um, is, it turns out what he was building was a cube. And so that's a kind of weird, weird detail. Now, um, there's a slightly older version. Turns out it's about a thousand years older. Um, and this one comes from the Epic of Atrahasis. It shares a lot of similarities with Gilgamesh. Indeed, it might have actually been the, the sort of inspiration for the Gilgamesh version of the flood. Um, and this one has, in fact, a round boat, which makes a little bit more sense. Um does that mean and, spherical or like a boat shape? Uh, more like a like a kind of donut shape. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and in this, actually, when we sort of look back on the archaeological record of the kinds of boats that people use, this actually makes good sense because this maps on pretty closely to the kinds of uh, rafts that were being sort of created and used sometime later. Uh, so it, it kind of... Um, it holds together as a, as a sort of plot point. The cube, on the other hand, makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, nobody quite knows <laughs> right. what they thought. <laughs> right. But it, back to your question of, you know, how similar is the Bible or how unique is the Bible? When we look at a story like Gilgamesh, when we look at Atrahasis, we see a lot of commonalities with the biblical account um, of Noah and the flood that Noah undergoes. In the flood um, that Noah is undergoing, we hear that he too has to go out and make a raft. Um, He too is given instructions as to what kinds of animals to take on board. The general trajectory follows the same sort of um, the pattern. Uh, there is right a because sort of, uh, um, uh, Utnapishtim also has to save animals with him. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Is that yeah. true of the other fellow? It yeah. is. It yeah. is of Atrahasis, and yeah. in all of them, the story actually ends with the main character. So whether it's Noah, Atrahasis, or Utnapishtim, offering some kind of a sacrifice to the deities mm-hmm. um, or to Yahweh, in the case of the Hebrew Bible. And this sacrifice is what prompts the gods to sort of promise that they will never again bring such a flood. And in the Noah story, we have this additional detail that God places a rainbow in the sky. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be a sign that he's never going to do this when the expectation um, sort of, especially the way the story gets retold, um, is that when you see a rainbow in the sky, that's a reminder to you that God's not going to do this again. What's yes. kind of funny, actually, yes. is that's not what the story says. The story actually says that the reminder 
is for God. That God's supposed to see this rainbow. In other words, it's a kind of giant post-it up in the sky. <laughs> so, <laughs> when, when God kind of starts to forget and he's like, wow, these humans are driving me crazy. Yeah. I want to wipe them out. He sees the rainbow and he's like, nope, said I wasn't going to do that. Wow. Okay. So is this Genesis nine here? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's let's look as we have the benefit of of uh, it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy. Oh, you're absolutely right. I yeah. never realized that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in part the reason why we um, don't necessarily realize this is because it seems. Uh, fairly straightforward yeah. to us today that God knows everything. Yeah. Why does he need a reminder? But as we read the Hebrew Bible a little bit more closely, we start to notice that the conception of God in these ancient texts is actually a little bit fluid. People are still trying to figure out what is God like? And because the Bible is written by a lot of different authors in different time periods, different places, we hear them sort of reflecting on this question of God's character in different ways. And one of them is that God seems a bit forgetful at times. (laughs) (laughs) And you can um, you can you can negotiate with him uh, as uh, Abraham does at uh, Sodom or Moses does uh, with his the stiff necked people. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, Moses has to kind of repeatedly remind God that he's made a covenant with these people and that he's better than this. Don't let your temper get the best of you. So it's a kind of uh, I think a kind of interesting way to think about um, to think about God and to think about the authors of the Bible, not necessarily having all the answers, but rather trying to think through them. And they're thinking about God in relation to the world that they live in. And so here's another point where we see a lot of similarities between the Bible and its sort of ancient Near Eastern context, Mm -hmm. which is that in all of these texts, we see God's changing their minds. We see um, God's sort of reflecting on what they've done, sometimes being remorseful. Um, in in the Genesis story, we see when um, Noah offers the sacrifice, that's the point at which we suddenly hear God saying, I'm not going to do this again. Yeah. Well, what is it about the sacrifice? Because that plot point is in Atrahasis, it's in Gilgamesh, what is it about sacrifice that makes God suddenly say, I'm not going to do this again? And what, well, what do you think is the answer? Well, the answer uh, is, again, not a very, uh, not one that aligns with our sort of ideas of God today. But it's this notion that gods are sustained by the sacrifices that people bring to them because they are, they're actually eating, they're actually consuming the smell of sacrifices. It's like a barbecue. When you smell a barbecue, you say, wow, that smells good. And you're kind of attracted to it, right? You're kind of, you're like, where, where's this barbecue happening? And so sacrifices are designed to get God's attention. And even in the Hebrew Bible, this is the way the, um, 
sort of people conceive of how they can contact God. You make a sacrifice. Why do they think this? It seems to be how everybody thinks at this time. Now, the Bible undergoes a shift pretty quickly um, to a view that God is something other. Uh, God doesn't just eat and drink um, as sort of ordinary people do um, or ordinary gods do. And by the time we get to a prophet like Isaiah, it's very clear that the prophet wants to sort of disabuse anyone of that view that God might be like the other ancient Near Eastern gods. Um, but we see this kind of, it's a development. It's not a sort of um, cut and dry issue for the biblical authors. It's something they're really wrestling with. I have so many questions. I'm just going <laughs> to give them give them to you, and then you pick where we want to go next. Because sure. the first one is, um, I remember from Gilgamesh that uh, uh, Utnapishnim sent out a crow at the end to find land, just the way that Noah sends a dove. So I know there's little tropes here that I think you would say like, ah, well, clearly this is a tradition borrowed from from neighbors. But I also heard a, um, a lecture by an anthropologist uh, who was arguing that there had been an actual universal flood in the Black Sea where the level of the mm-hmm. Black Sea had had been risen. So my second question is very sophomoric. Do you believe, do scholars today believe that there had been a great flood on which all of these are based? Maybe not necessarily that everything in the world was destroyed the way the Bible tells it, but the way that people could have imagined it. And and then um, the third one is about just the, if you have this idea of a barbecue and smells, right, this harkens back to a time when people were hungrier. And I know this because I, I lived for a couple of years in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer, and there, mm-hmm. like, meat was very scarce. And you you ate uh-huh. meat at, you know, at big events, at, at annual parties, at, at marriage ceremonies, things like that. But it wasn't a, a day-to-day activity. So I just imagine people celebrate with meat and they're just, they just don't have as many calories or, you know, it's such, it's such, such a source of wealth, uh, animals that that would be super special. And then the last question is when you go back and, and edit the Bible in those last few cent, I I think like, you know, 500 years BC or something like that, you know, when they come, took the first Genesis tradition and the second one and put them side by side and they're so different. Why not just why not just override it to go to Isaiah's version of events where God <laughs> isn't like why not just change it you know why did they yeah. leave so many things so that's yeah. so much I'm sure you I'm sure that's way too many questions but what <laughs> <laughs> okay well let me try to take a stab at them I'm gonna okay. go first with the, the question about um, let's stick with the the kind of plot one first of okay. the bird right yeah um, so the reason why a bird seems to be the thing that gets sent out. Yes, all of them have them in common, but it's also the only way in which you could imagine testing whether or not the flood had ended because birds are the only things that can fly and return, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the The text really is silent on the question of whether or not fish are affected by this flood, (laughs) right? I I was actually teaching a class um, on the flood narratives a couple of weeks ago, and my students said, well, what about all the fish? Like, this doesn't seem to matter to them. And I think it's true because the, the sort of worldview is from a community that lives on land, right? And so they're not thinking of the fish exactly. 
Right. That's so they the, don't they don't swim. They don't go underwater. Exactly. Fish are pulled out from the sea. Nobody goes into the sea. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so the bird makes sense because it has independence. Right. It can fly, and it can come back. If you send, uh, I don't know, a horse out or a giraffe, they're likely yeah. <laughs> to just drown, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to make it very far. Um, so that seems to be what's sort of driving the selection of birds. Um, I'm sure some scholars have come up with even more sort of detailed theories of why birds in particular, why these birds. Um, one theory, for example, is that these birds are... Um, often fit for bringing as sacrifices. And so perhaps it has something to do with that as well. Um, but in terms of your your other, your second question about whether or not this flood really happened, this is a, it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of very uh, engaging and interesting question to keep thinking about, right? Did a catastrophic flood really take place? And, the answer is, is that it probably didn't happen, that it was the entire world that was flooded, and that's what each one of these texts is describing. The reason I yeah. say this is because although there are numerous stories around the world of major floods that take place, they always seem to come from communities that live near bodies of water. In other words, they're communities that might have experienced local catastrophic floods. And so when they think, what's the worst thing that could happen if the world was going to end? How would it happen? They think of water. They think of water sort of flooding everywhere. It's the absence of control. Mm -hmm. And for mm -hmm. biblical authors and for um, Gilgamesh and Atrahasis, it's a return to this sort of primordial state before God takes control, in the case of the Hebrew Bible, or before gods like Marduk um, managed to sort of wrest the world into some sort of order. And so it, there's a symmetry there. But there are other regions of the world that imagine, uh, funnily enough, things like earthquakes. And so my sense is that it has to do with the, the sort of geographical location of our authors. Now, you might say, well, there's not really, other than the Jordan and the Dead Sea, which are not known for catastrophic flooding, there's not really a huge body of water next to Jerusalem, right? right. Um, there's the Mediterranean, of course, um, but that's at a bit of a remove from Jerusalem. But my response would be to that sort of objection is that it doesn't seem that these texts are necessarily composed in Jerusalem itself. A lot of our biblical stories are composed when people are in exile, when they're living in Babylon, mm -hmm. and they're actually coming into contact with Babylonian stories, Babylonian texts, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh. And so it makes sense that they might draw on some of these tropes, some of these ideas, and fit them then into their own theology. Um, I don't know. Does that sort of makes sense that makes plenty of sense do you so do you think that portion of genesis uh comes from the exile in babylon as recently as like 600 or 500 bc i think it's very possible yes i think that it's also possible however that people have 
sort of interacted and encountered these stories at a point prior, because if we recall the Assyrians before the Babylonians take over, the Assyrians have really sort of created this empire that at different points has included Judah. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that there are other moments in Israel and Judah's past where they would have encountered the great literature of Babylon and Ashur, Assyria. Um, and so it's it's hard to sort of pinpoint exactly when this text would have been sort of written and whether or not the the composition is the first time people are coming up with the story or whether it's reflective of oral traditions that they've been sort of passing down for some time prior. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and, yes. Oh, no, go ahead. Um I, I, I actually, if there was, I was going to sort of go to an, a different question. So is there something else to add? Um, no, I think Maybe I'm about sacrifice. On that one. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to respond to your question about sacrifice yes. being about meat being scarce. And you're absolutely right that meat is a precious commodity. And so the way you show your respect, the way you show your loyalty is by bringing something that is sort of not easy for you to part with. It's hard to sort of give up your uh, your sort of yearling calf and offer most of it up as a burnt offering. Yeah. And so the other aspect, though, and actually you mentioned this, how uh, in your time in Africa, how people thought of meat as something, as a time of celebration, right? You associate eating meat with, you know, a big gathering. And that seems to also be something that is present in the ancient Near East, that sacrifices are, you don't burn the whole thing. Much of it goes up as a burnt offering. But after that, the remnants of the sacrifice are there as a feast for the priest and for the community that has brought it, for the family or the person who's brought the sacrifice. So there's certainly something um, about this sort of communal aspect of sacrifice that is also playing in here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember in, the, I, I study like medieval and early modern history. And I, I just remember how much um, King Louis of France, when he was on crusade or, or when he went to Egypt or something like that, paid for a, a fragment of the, of the true cross or the, or the, yeah. you know, like he really put his money where his mouth is. He paid some ridiculous amount you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds or something, which, you know, reveal his tremendous faith in, in like, it wasn't just an empty gesture or, yeah. or, or, or Mary Madeline with her, um, with her jar of uh, oil of nard, yeah. right. That is such a precious thing to give up. I think exactly. it, 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 uh, it shows you, you put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's a truly a sign of your devotion, of your loyalty and your commitment. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the character of of the God of Israel, Yahweh, yeah. versus the other the other gods of the time. Is monotheism something that sprang up suddenly as a revelation, or is it something that evolved over time with a minority of ancient Jews thinking in a new way? How do how do biblical yeah. scholars understand? This, so, this religion that has survived, you know, survived yeah. everything, survived the Babylon conquest and, and all this, everything else. Yeah. Uh, so this is such an interesting question. It's so fascinating to kind of look at the history. 
because it begins with the sort of sense of uh, what scholars call monolatry, right? The awareness that there are some other gods in the world, but that there's only one god for the Israelites. That even if the Egyptians have their gods, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, doesn't matter, you, the Israelites, you're supposed to only worship Yahweh. Now, there's reflection even in the biblical text that this is a sort of um, almost arbitrary thing that Yahweh is Israel's God. Can I ask, is, is monolatry, uh, this is the, the strongest God, but they are similar in character the way, you know, Zeus might be stronger than Bacchus or something? Or is it like uh, this is a very different kind? This is the God who created the other gods. Ah, uh, um, it is more just that there are a number of gods and this community has chosen to worship this God. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not even yet a sort of power struggle or that uh, Yahweh has maybe created the other gods or some other higher God has created them. Um, but we do get an indication to this question that you're asking. Um, we get an indication in Deuteronomy 32 that there is a notion that there was a high God whose name was El, E-L is how you spell it, um, who creates all the different gods of the world and all the nations of the world. And Deuteronomy 32 tells us that at the time in which El is apportioning the nations, at the time in which he is sort of dividing the the world, the land into different regions, he also appoints gods for each of these different regions. And Israel and Jacob are allotted to Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh happens to get Jacob. It doesn't tell us quite why, but it tells us that this is how it was. Now, it doesn't really then either reflect or come back to this issue. It just carries on as though, well, this is how it is, and this is how we're going to move forward. This is amazing. Okay, so I I can only (laughs) say this in English, and it it says the most high, and I think the most high would be L. Yes. Right? The way uh-huh. like, every, like everything ends in El, Israel, that yes. sort of thing. Um, and yeah. also the same El as in Allah, that kind of El is God or no? Um, I think so. I'm not absolutely positive if it's etymologically related. Okay, but then it says, but the Lord's portion was his people. And we yes. know for that you can't write or you can't pronounce Yahweh. So you say, yes. what? Lord. what is it? Is it Adonai that they put in? Adonai. Did, Adonai. Yep. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's the Lord's portion was, that's amazing. Okay, I'm sorry, keep yeah. going. So, so this is really interesting, right? Because the Bible itself is acknowledging, hey, there are these other gods. But, and I, I suppose one other thing I should say, is that we are also accustomed to thinking that because Genesis is at the beginning of the Bible, it is the earliest text written. And that, you know, then it goes chronologically forward. And what we actually find is that some parts are written a bit earlier, some are written a bit later. Deuteronomy 32 seems to actually reflect a much earlier text, a much earlier sort of theology. And by the time we actually get to the composition of Genesis, in fact, we find that the God of Genesis 1 has actually taken over some of the characteristics of El, the Most High God. Mm. And we see in the Hebrew Bible, there are two names that by which God tends to be known. One is El or Elohim. This is the generic name, both for the Most High God, but also just for God with a little g. 
And then we also have the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. And El as a character seems to be a bit fluid. It's taking over a lot of attributes and sort of characteristics of other Canaanite deities. And it's collapsing those into a single entity. At some point, by the time we get to, in the story at least, the book of Exodus, um, the story seems to suggest that this god has actually been named Yahweh all along. The literary evidence tells us, however, that this might actually be a slight fudging, that what we really have is a number of different deities who are steadily being collapsed into a single character. Um, and so it seems that from the get-go, we've got the, the sort of awareness of other gods. Then we've got the, the kind of progressive collapsing of characteristics of other deities into a single powerful god named Yahweh. And even at this time when they're being sort of lauded as Yahweh being this powerful god, it's not that Yahweh is the only god. There's still an understanding that, oh, well, in Babylon, they've got another god. But then by the time we get to the exile, people living in exile in Babylon, and Isaiah's text from Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 42, he's trying to imagine, well, how do I account for whether or not my God has any power anymore? If I'm sitting here in exile, does my God have power? Yeah. Does he have, in other words, does he have jurisdiction in Babylon if yeah. only Jacob was his portion? And the author of Isaiah says, actually, he does. He does have jurisdiction. And this is where we start getting that turn to monotheism. Because Isaiah says to, to the people around him, he says, you know, you guys need to get ready, you Israelites and Judeans here in exile, because Yahweh is going to return you to Jerusalem. And we don't quite get the people's response, but we we sort of hear from them, uh, sort of, if we read between the lines. And what they seem to be suggesting is that, hey, how can this God be that powerful? And so Isaiah goes into it and he says, he's going to lead you back. He's going to make sure that the road before you is made smooth, right? Mountains are turned into valleys. And then he goes on and he says, you know, you're living among the Babylonians and you Babylonians, and they come in now for the prophet's ire. And he says, you Babylonians, you think that Marduk is a powerful God? Well, you've just taken a log of wood and with part of the log, you fashioned it into a little sort of figurine of your God and the other half you burned for your wood stove. So <laughs> in other words, you just yeah. made your God up. Yeah. Our God can't be sort of put into form. Our God is better and greater and in fact, the only one. And so now we've got this real pivot um, from the theology that was prior to this. Um, but we see it being sort of um, buoyed along by the changing circumstances of people. It's easy to think that your God is really powerful um, if you're sitting by yourselves in Judah. But then if you've been defeated by the Babylonians, well, either your God was complicit in it as lamentation seems to think, or your God actually is not that powerful. Your God has just been defeated. 
Yeah. And how do you respond to this? And so the prophets give us these different views. Yeah. And um, the the character of God there is shifting from somebody who's really participating in the in the human fights, you know, yeah. the way that Moses' uh, staff turns into a serpent and he's the other serpents, that that sort of thing, right? Exactly. So one the one that um, allows bad things to happen to good people, which I think is our biggest problem. You know, why does why does my dear friend have cancer? What what's going uh-huh. on? Why you know what? Why on earth does God allow these things to happen? Why are we exiled here in Babylon if we are the chosen people? Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of God who isn't such an active, I mean, he knows everything, including the color of the hairs on my head, but he might not, he might allow, then, then I guess it becomes very, very mysterious as to, and that's the monotheistic way that like God is author of the whole story rather than as a character in the play. Yeah, it starts to to move in that direction, but it still seems that it, for much of the Hebrew Bible, God is still this uh, this ongoing developing character. And another way to think of it is that because we've got different authors, even though they've all got somebody named Yahweh in their story, what we're seeing is their representation of what God is like. It's not necessary that that encompasses the entire view of what God is, but rather we're getting snapshots of different people's sort of conception of God based on uh, the sort of circumstances they are living through, the questions, the theological issues that they're facing. And so they come at God's character slightly differently. Um, in other words, they're, it's like if you were to write um, a book about what God is, that might look a little bit different than if I were to write a book because it, there's a personal element there. And I think that's something we often forget about the biblical authors is that they're they're not always even aware of the other author's works. They're sort of all trying to describe the same person or the same deity, but they're not aware that somebody has actually just written a, a text about the same deity in a different way. Um, so does that, does that reveal a humility of the, uh, editors of the Bible? You know, Bible means library, of course, but, uh, that they would tolerate uh, opinions they might not hold. And they might say like, well, let's put Genesis one and two side by side. They're very different, but I'm not sure. Exactly. And this gets back to that earlier question that you asked, you know, why not just go with the God of Isaiah 42? Why bother? talking about Deuteronomy 32, where there's these, you know, multiple gods. And I think you're right, that there is a a humility or an an awareness that all of these perspectives are significant to this community. And so the individual group or individual person who's compiling all of the biblical stories into one text they don't really have the the sort of wherewithal or the authority to say this one is right and this one is wrong. And so they end up preserving all of it. And as a result, we get this sort of mishmash of um, sort of information about God. And it becomes sort of um, up to us as interpreters to be pulling out the, the sort of coherence from this. 
And that makes a lot of sense to me as far as the way I understand um, rabbinic uh, tra- tradition and transmission and just talking it over and arguing it over and adding, yeah. you know, annotations upon annotations upon annotations as they try to sort this out. Does yeah. this change as we move into the, you know, into the, um, uh, into the AD, into the common era with uh, Christians who, so, I, do, do, or let me say this, do Jews yeah. believe that the Holy Spirit Right, as as mm-hmm. if they if the, if such a thing can be said in Judaism, has inspired the, the 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 prophets and the authors the same way that Christians believe this in um, in thinking about the Bible. Yeah. So, in in terms of do they believe that the Bible is inspired? Yes. Yeah. For um, Orthodox Jews, absolutely. Um, for many Christians and for for many Jews, however. The Bible is, it's a, it's a humanly authored work by people who are inspired to be sure, but not necessarily um, all inspired in the same way, if you will. And I think even in the New Testament, there too, we're accustomed to saying, well, it's, it's all sort of inspired. And we assume inspired means coherent. We assume that Mm. if it's inspired, it has to hang together. But we know from our own lives that God works differently in your life than God works in, I don't know, in Britney Spears's life or in my daughter's life, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so to then say that there's only one way in which God could have spoken or God could have intended for his words to be interpreted seems to sort of miss the point. And I think that having the Bible there as a kind of example is really a sort of, it's kind of standing witness to the diversity of ways in which God has interacted with human beings. And it offers us actually a very nice lesson that we can't assume that God is always going to be identically revealing himself um, to people throughout time. And, you know, another thing about the New Testament is that even there we see a kind of development of theology in relation to the to the issues that people are facing and to the kinds of changes that they they have to accommodate for, they have to account for um, as their religion sorts of sort of takes root. So one example is the Trinity. The Trinity is actually nowhere mentioned in any of the Gospels. It's one that, as a sort of church dogma, becomes dogma only in the 4th century CE. Before that, people are debating. They're they're even debating whether or not Jesus is the literal son of God, or is he the son of God much the way Solomon and David were in 2 Samuel 7? Because there, too, they're called the son of God. And there it's a metaphorical, it's an adopted son, right? In other words, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you are my, uh, you're my sort of protege, David. You're my protege, Solomon. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to be your mentor. In the New Testament, it seems to be imagining, at least in some of the texts, a very literal son of God. But that wasn't the, it wasn't sort of agreed upon by everybody. And so there, too, I'd like to suggest that we see a lot of dynamism in the tradition. 
And I think this is something that the Catholic Church really has emphasized over the course of its history, that the church is not just a sort of frozen entity. It's something that is constantly shifting in its tradition because revelation is ongoing. And when we think of it that way, it makes a little bit more sense that, yes, even the Bible wouldn't be all saying the same thing. It's also a kind of, um, it's a handbook for us of seeing how revelation happens. And, and therefore, it's also a conversation not only between me, the individual reader, and the mm-hmm. Holy Scripture, if I sit here and, and read, and then it might say something to me about the problems or thoughts I'm having about my day-to-day, but also as a church or as a, um, a you know, very big church, meaning all all the people of God, all the Jews, all the Christians, all the Muslims, yeah. all the all the monotheists in this tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's so mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it yeah. is, and it's a mystery also yeah. as to how does this one survive these two religions, and then later on Islam. How did these make it in a way yeah. that? You know, the Babylonian religion seemed to die out. And for many believers, it's evidence that, well, this isn't simply a story. Even if it has similarities to the world around it, there seems to be something different here. It's almost as if those um, elements, those literary uh, themes and tropes are just building blocks the way I can take, um, you know, uh, some wood and stone and I can make a temple of this kind or a temple of that kind. Yeah. They'll have similarities, but, but they'll have different, um, essence. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've, I, 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 I know we've been talking for more than an hour, even though we've, we've had an earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what are some, what, what important things have I failed to ask you that, that you would like our listeners to consider? Um, well, I don't think it's that you failed to ask me. <laughs> or I haven't thought um, of it. I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I, I think there's just, there's always more. Yeah. And so I suppose like maybe what I'd like to leave um, the listeners with is just an invitation to read the text on its own and try to really get into it and sort of be aware of the the kinds of conventions that biblical authors are using and be open to the possibility that not all of it makes sense and holds together at first glance. Um, and that's okay. I think that's it's a sort of invitation to wrestle with this text. Well, that's perfect. Oh, let me ask, do you think Moses wrote the Pentateuch? No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we should talk of the the mosaic author rather than yeah. of Moses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. in fact, there there are four separate schools of authors who have um, composed the Pentateuch. There's it seems a single school that compiles it all into one Pentateuch, but there are four separate schools of authors that have composed the different parts of the Pentateuch. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, then that's perfect. Let's let me first of all let me say thank you so much, um, Professor Chopra McGowan, and thank you so much, Little Uma, for being so cooperative and quiet. And uh, I hope <laughs> it's a pleasure to hear her little voice. Um, would you Would you leave us with a blessing? 
Absolutely. Thank you for asking me. Um, So may the Lord guide us. May the Lord guide your reading, guide your thinking, and may the Lord open up for you interpretations of new ways of knowing. May the Lord open up for you the possibility of newness and life. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. And hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Kathleen Chopra McGowan recorded this conversation on Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, the Feast of St. Crispin. The twins, Crispin and Crispian, were martyred by the Roman Emperor Diocletian in 286. It was also the day of the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, when English forces under Henry V were greatly outnumbered by the French army of Charles VI, led by the constable of Charles d'Albret. And yet the English were overwhelmingly victorious. The use of the longbow by Henry's Welsh archers was significant. And so was the king's personal leadership in hand-to-hand combat during the battle. This is the story, of course, of uh, William Shakespeare's play, Henry V, where the king says, Praised be God and not our strength for it, referring to the victory. That play also contains the famous St. Crispin's Day soliloquy, which I have always loved since I saw Kenneth Branagh's version of it long ago when I was 12 years old. Um, I'll include that in the notes, but I also like to give it a shot. So for those of you who are not in the mood for a little amateur Shakespeare, I invite you to stop the podcast now and move on to better things. Uh, For those who wish to indulge me, um, you'll remember that on the eve of the battle, the English dreading the day, the king walks among them in disguise, talking among them, listening, and picking up their spirits. In the morning, he's now dressed as a king, arrayed for battle, and he overhears his cousin wishing for 10,000 more soldiers. And this is his reply. Presented to you by me in my uh, silly American accent with my silly Polish accent in my silly American accent. Here it goes. <clears throat> What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we're enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear, such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. (sighs) No faith, my cuss, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor as one man more, methinks, would share from me, for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. 
Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford, and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap, while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. Okay, thank you, indulgent and patient listeners. Uh, here we go. Our music uh, for the podcast is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. And during the earthquake, we also played Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag, performed by my 13-year-old daughter, Miriam. And just now, we had uh, Richard Wagner's Overture to Tannhäuser, which I took from museopen.org. The image of the dog with the torch in his mouth, the Dominicanus, comes from a stained glass window at the Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain, and I take it with the permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.op.org. My name is Chris Odinians. I thank you so much for listening. Email me anytime at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I'll talk to you next time. This is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and